Listening to the Coffee Hour, I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. It is Holy Week, and one of our favorite things to talk about here on the Coffee Hour certainly would be hymns. Hymns. Uh, hymns. We love talking about hymns on the Coffee Hour, and we always love talking with experts when it comes to hymns. We like talking to everyday people too, but uh, it's it's really <laughs> fun to talk to experts about hymns. So I'm excited to do that here on the Coffee Hour today. Are you excited about that, Sarah? I am quite excited about yes. this. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting the Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. Joining us today, Deaconess Ruth McDonald. She's a Ph.D. student at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Deaconess McDonald, thank you so much for being our guest on the Coffee Hour today. Thank you for having me. It's Tell us to be about... here and talk about hymns. <laughs> oh, we are, are ecstatic about talking about hymns. And Holy Week, what better time to talk about hymns than like all the seasons of the church here where we get to dig out great hymns and and uh, and discuss them and, uh, and and enjoy singing them in our parish. It's going to be a little different this year, perhaps, uh, for Holy Week, um, singing them at home, singing them from afar. I don't know, maybe going out on my balcony and singing them nice and loud yes. for all the neighbors to That's hear. That's a great that idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, tell us about the... The, the nature of um, the, the direction of your studies at Concordia Seminary. Sure. I started my Master of Arts studies with Deaconess Certification in 2003. And at that time, there was lots of talk from Dr. Jeff Gibbs, who's a professor at the seminary that you may know, and uh, N.T. Wright, who's an Anglican scholar that writes about eschatology, which is the end of times and the return of Christ. And both of those gentlemen often said that our hymnody just doesn't talk about that enough. So I decided I'm, I'm going to study this. I was a former church musician, and I thought that's, that's going to be my niche. I'm going to look at hymns, and I'm going to decide which ones are good and which ones are bad. And for a while, <laughs> I did that. You know, But we've got scholars in the Missouri Synod who have worked long and hard to put together our hymnals and select the hymns. And some of them come from our Lutheran tradition, and some of them we have adopted from other traditions and made our own. But we have to, I think, understand them scripturally. So there are images in the hymns that we can take according to cultural narratives. That is to say, for example, Abide With Me is one that both Dr. Gibbs and Dr. Wright have, have picked on a bit because it talks about the shadows and the, the darkness as if we're in, in Plato's cave. You know, Plato has this image of people being tied up in a cave and all they can see is the shadows of the people behind them because of the sunlight and they see the, the shadows on the wall and can only kind of imagine what those people are doing until finally they're released and they get to go out into the sun and now they know everything. So it's kind of this picture of we don't know clearly now, but when, when we get that knowledge, that secret knowledge, well, then we'll know everything. Well, that's that's not exactly Christianity, is it? <laughs> so if if we think of that narrative, we look at Abide With Me, and we, we hear it differently. But 
if you compare the text of abide with me with the scriptural narrative which certainly is more appropriate it's a christian hymn and i'm quite sure that the hymn writer wrote it with scripture in mind rather than plato's cave if we look at it that way then we hear this this glorious there's darkness here on earth because of sin but on the last day um how does how does the phrase go um the the dawning of the new day you and you hear this this return of christ type language if you're comparing it with scripture rather than with another narrative so that's kind of what got me started on this path toward looking at hymns and how they talk about the return of christ specifically but then i ran into a fellow named justin rosso he was a PhD student when I was working on my MA at the seminary, and his focus was on metaphor theory. He was also our assistant pastor, so he experimented a lot on our congregation with his <laughs> theories about how he used metaphor in preaching. And I'm going to plug his latest book, which is called Preaching Metaphor. And if there are pastors out there listening, Preaching Metaphor by Justin Rosso, fabulous book by Next Step Press. And what Rosso does is, first of all, gives us a better understanding of what metaphor is. So metaphor is not simply a literary device that gives us flowery language to talk about one thing in terms of another. But we actually think metaphor so let me give you an example can you guys tell me what the stock market has been doing lately um well, it's been probably. dropping and then rising and all <laughs> over the place dropping <laughs> and rising right has has this stock market the floor of the stock market is it on a some sort of motorized platform that it goes up and down in the air <laughs> No, no, no. <laughs> it's a metaphor. We can't even talk about what the stock market is doing without using a metaphor, which is called in, in metaphor language, up is good, down is bad. <laughs> so it rises and it goes down, and that's how we talk about metaphor. Let me give you another example. How do we talk about when someone gets a disease? They fall ill. They fall ill, but but how do you? I can't even find a word that doesn't use the medical. <laughs> Under the weather um, is when oh. you feel sick. Yeah. You're sick, and you go to the doctor, and doctor gives you some medicine to fight the infection. Ah. And what do your white blood cells do? They attack the disease. <laughs> do you see the metaphor that's happening there? Hmm. There's a battle metaphor. The medical profession can hardly function without using the battle metaphor to talk about the, the advances of the disease or the decline of the disease. And they're, they're using all this battle imagery. So we're not just talking about one thing in terms of another, but we actually think about it that way. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, how how does our our understanding of of our language, I guess our English language, maybe in particular, 
how does how does that that uh, built in lens that we view scripture how do, and and hymnody how does that affect then how we understand hymnody as we sing it and read through it? Sure, very good question. What I focused on in my dissertation was actually two metaphors that are quite prominent in talking about death and dying. One of them is the battle metaphor that we just talked about. And the other is a journey metaphor. So the journey metaphor goes something like this. Um, I begin my journey of life when I'm born. And when I go off to college, I'm not doing so well in my major subject. So I might have to take a detour and pick up something else. And then I might my, my goal in life, my destination might be getting married and having six children and those sorts of things. So you see that, you hear that language of journey, making decisions about what route you're going to take or what vehicle you're going to go in or that you may have had, a, had to, to make a U-turn and, and rethink something. So do you hear the journey language in there? So yeah. with the journey imagery, we often think of our, our life as a journey, beginning when we're born, going through baptism, confirmation, and, and death. The culture sees death as the end of the journey, right? There mm -hmm. may be some sort of disembodied afterlife, but it's, it's, life is really over when you die. Christianity doesn't see that as the end of the journey. There's, there's a pausing point when you're dead, but you're awaiting the next journey to the resurrection and the new creation. So what I did with my work on the journey metaphor with the, the hymns that I selected for my dissertation work was to talk about how those hymns reflected that ongoing journey. It was not just a journey to death and now you're dead and it's over, but a journey to death, which is a pausing point on the Christian journey, and then the ongoing journey into the new creation at the return of Christ. The battle metaphor has another issue when we compare it with the battle metaphor in common culture. So especially at Easter time, when we talk about Christ's victory over death, right? We... Yeah. We need to think about battle and what that means. We also need to think about battle in the context of the time frame of when scripture was written. So what did a battle look like in say Old Testament times? What happened? Who? Let's say it this way. I'm gonna quote Dr. Rosso here. Who's doing what for whom? So a king goes to battle and what's he trying to do? He's trying to, to bring peace or earn land or something like that. To, and what does he do with that? That He gives that to his people. So when Jesus goes to battle for us, the victory is his victory, which he shares them with us. So one of the things that that bothers me in the way we talk about death sometimes, have you ever heard the phrase, Oh, Susan finally won her battle with cancer. Mm. Mm -hmm. Because they're trying to say that 
Susan has died and that because of Jesus' victory, Susan has victory over death. But they shorthanded it so much that it loses the fullness of the biblical narrative that says that Christ battled death, Christ won, Christ shares that with us. I can't win the victory over death, can I? <laughs> Neither <laughs> right, can you. Right. It's Christ yeah. who wins the victory and then shares the, the spoils of the victory, if you will, with us. So looking at the battle metaphor and the journey metaphor in hymns, in those terms, understanding them in the way scripture describes battle metaphor and journey metaphor, we get so much more of a richness and a more theologically correct, in my opinion, interpretation of the hymns. We're talking about metaphor in hymns with Deaconess Ruth McDonald, a PhD student at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. We'll continue the conversation in just a moment. We're going to take a look at some great hymns for Holy Week in just a moment right here on the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Bolsa. You're a miracle. You know that, right? A living, breathing, one-of-a-kind miracle. You were created to stand apart, to share your gifts in the service of others, to make an uncommon impact in a common world. And at Concordia University, it's our mission to help you do that, to live uncommon. To learn more about Concordia, go to cuw.edu. Listening to the Coffee Hour, I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We're talking about metaphor in hymns with Deaconess Ruth McDonald. She's a PhD student at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. And uh, to, to sum up, we've been talking about the the, the metaphors and the images, uh, the the metaphors of like journey and battle that that uh, we see sometimes in hymns. And now we're going to dig into some Holy Week hymns. Um, Deaconess McDonald. Let's. What, what's the first hymn you'd like to take us uh, through today, take a look at? Let's look at Sing My Tongue, The Glorious Battle from Lutheran Service Book number 454. All right. So I'm going to guess that this one has some battle imagery in it, right? <laughs> that, am I yes, on the right page? very good. The word <laughs> battle right, right in the front of it. So one of the things that, that I like to think about when I read the hymn is, Metaphor is not a stagnant thing. It's it's not simply comparing one thing to another, but there's there's a story behind it, and story is so important in in the development of our Christian faith. There is this grand meta narrative that that we're all a part of. So I want to think about it in terms of what's the story of this battle. So the first stanza says, "Sing my tongue the glorious battle. Sing the ending of the fray." Now above the cross, the trophy, sound the loud triumphant lay. Tell how Christ, the world's redeemer, as a victim, won the day. I read that, that stanza and I hear all this stuff about the, the end of the battle. So, But my mind goes back to the beginning of the battle and entering into this war. And I, I'm a big geek in terms of 
historical fiction. And I'm reading a book right now that that's taking place at the beginning of World War Two. And I'm thinking about those times and how the battles were in the trenches and, and what an awful thing it must have been for a young man to go off to war in those times and how scary and frightening. And so there's this this sense of anticipation and fear and going into this battle against this enemy that you don't know if you can defeat it, but who's leading our army into battle? Someone who can't be defeated, Christ our Lord, right? Mm -hmm. So we have that, that battle scene in the back of our minds and we know how a battle works. We know that in, in this case, we're talking about Jesus going to battle for us and with us to fight against whom? Against sin, death, and the power of the devil, right? Mm -hmm. And how does he do that? And we, we flesh out that narrative in our minds from all that we know of, of the, the narrative of salvation, the, the scriptural stories that we all have in our minds, just kind of fill that image with so much more than just the words on the page, right? Mm -hmm. So but we get to the, the last line of that stanza and we go, as a victim won the day. What? <laughs> the victim wins? Isn't the victim the guy that dies? And if everybody dies, how do they win the battle, right? <laughs> so it's, it's a big surprise, huh? The victim won the day. Then the second stanza tells us, tell how when at length the fullness of the appointed time was come, he the word was born of woman, left for us his father's throne, blazed the path of true obedience, shone his light amidst the gloom. I'm hearing there some journey image, right? He left his father's throne, he blazed a path. So I'm seeing this picture of someone who's, who's on a task, who's going from, from point A to point B. There are some readings for, for Holy Week about Jesus setting, setting his eyes like Flint for Jerusalem, right? Mm -hmm. I'm seeing that image of, of Christ single-mindedly going from here to there, from, from birth, right? The fullness of time, there was a, he was born of a woman, and he's, from that point, he's setting his mind on Jerusalem where he has to go to die for us this path that he never diverts. He doesn't have detours like we talked about that we have in our own lives. He's set on Jerusalem for us and shining amidst the gloom. So his light lights his path as well as lighting ours. Mm -hmm. So in the third stanza then, thus with 30 years accomplished, he went forth, journeying, forth from Nazareth, destined, dedicated, willing, did his work and met his death like a lamb he humbly yielded on the cross his dying breath. A lamb. There's another metaphor. Mm -hmm. Is Jesus a fuzzy little sheep with a cute little black nose? <laughs> <laughs> nope. No. How does he compare to a lamb, though? When we talk about Jesus as the lamb of God, what are we talking about? Spotless, blameless, perfect. Spotless, blameless. And what happens to that spotless, blameless lamb? Sacrifice. 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 So here's another narrative that comes in the back of your mind of how does sacrifice work? What do we know about the sacrificial system 
about the sacrificing of a lamb, particularly on Passover, that that lamb stands in for us and dies for us, sheds his blood for us. So the metaphor isn't comparing Jesus to a fuzzy little lamb and look how fuzzy he is. No, <laughs> it's comparing to the lamb of sacrifice. So there are things about all metaphors that are, are hidden. We, we don't pay attention to the fuzziness of the lamb or how cute it is. What we're paying attention to is the, the sacrificial aspect. We're comparing Jesus to that sacrificial lamb. So what does that mean? That means that he sacrifices himself for us, sheds his blood for us, and look like a, he did his work and met his death like a lamb. What does that mean? How does the lamb go to the sacrifice? It's not buying and screaming and carrying on. It's, it's bound taken to the altar, probably in trusting the arms of that person that's been raised by a human being, right? Mm -hmm. So quietly and meekly goes to the altar where it's sacrificed. That's what we're comparing. That narrative is what's being compared to the narrative of Jesus during Holy Week, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then it stands a four, faithful cross, true sign of triumph, be for all the noblest tree, None in foliage, none in blossom, none in fruit your equal be. Symbol of the world's redemption for the weight that hung on thee. Wow. Sign of triumph. That goes back to our battle metaphor from the, the first stanza. The cross is the sign of the victory. Isn't that weird? <laughs> so often, especially those of us that have been Christians for a long time, don't even think about how weird that is a cross it would be like for us saying the electric chair i've heard people say H having the electric chair is the symbol for christianity <laughs> that's weird it's a symbol of how they killed criminals in in new testament times that's that becomes a symbol of victory that's weird and cool and a great transformation that, that that symbol of death becomes for us a symbol of, of triumph and life. Mm -hmm. But then it talks more about the tree, that there is no other tree whose, whose flowers or fruit is equal to the fruit and the flowers from that cross. So we're comparing all the beauty of a tree, the, the taste from the fruit of the tree to what Jesus has done on the cross. So the tree, the cross, becomes a symbol of our redemption and has, has that beauty for us rather than that fear and that, that foreboding of, of an instrument of death, right? Mm -hmm. And then the fifth stanza is simply a, a doxological praise to God the Father and the Son and the, and the Spirit. Mm -hmm. So questions about how, how I'm doing this or because what I'd like people to learn is how to, how to garner more out of these hymns as they sing them and, and meditate on them. Yeah, I think this is I'm, my my uh, my hymn nerdery wheels are just spinning out of control <laughs> because well because as you're as you're walking through this and there there are so many things um, that we do, that that we take for granted as as 
as Lutherans in our in our theology that when we're singing this, we just we just understand uh, what we're singing and don't always stop to actually read through this slowly and and think about what right. each of these lines is actually saying. So right. uh, there's just there's so much packed into you know these these four or five short uh, stanzas that that just span the whole breadth of the of the salvation story, which is just awesome. <laughs> and one we of have, the other things I, I love to do is I, I go through a hymn when I've got all this time to do it, is to go, well, where did this come from? Like the fullness of time, that's Galatians 6. I'm not really good at, at pulling those those verses out of the air. But, mm-hmm. you know, if, if I'm sitting by myself studying a hymn, I'll go, well, Wow, where did that come from? Oh, yeah, look at that context and look at how that context from Scripture fills in some of the the gaps that the hymn is just kind of using shorthand. You know, you Mm -hmm. know about this. You know how Christ was born of a woman at the fullness of time. You know Mm -hmm. how after 30 years he went out of Nazareth. But to go back and and pull in some of the the Scriptures to, to flesh out those stories can bring such richness of meaning to these hymns that we we sing so often yeah we have just about a minute left um so and and i i'm totally fine that we didn't get to the other hymn however uh for people who want to to try this out on uh 438 a lamb goes on complaining forth can you give us just like uh, a few tips or things to look for as we read through this hymn uh on our own time this week that is a fabulous idea I think what you can do is go back to what I said from from Pastor Rosso, who said, look at the metaphor and think about who is doing what for whom and how. So when you look at a lamb goes uncomplaining forth, we're back to that sacrificial metaphor. So when you read the hymn, think about what that lamb is doing, what he's doing it, who he's doing it for and how the lamb is doing it. What things are are helping him to accomplish the sacrifice? What things are standing in the way of him accomplishing the sacrifice? And think that through in terms of, here's how it looks for the, the sacrificial lamb in the sacrificial system. Here's what how the story runs. But then here's how it looks when you're looking at it as Jesus being the sacrificial lamb. Here's what Jesus does, and here's what Jesus accomplishes for us, and here are the aspects that are are working against him accomplishing that for us, and here are the aspects that are working with him to accomplish that for us. Deaconess Ruth McDonald, PhD student at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, helping us look at hymns of Holy Week, particularly looking at metaphor and hymns. Deaconess McDonald, thank you so much for being our guest today on The Coffee Hour. Thank you again for having me. It's been a pleasure. Blessed Holy Week and Easter to everyone. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golsa.
The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Oh,